That was a clip from the film Last Days in the Desert by Rodrigo Garcia, starring Obi-Wan Kenobi. Um, I, I do have to say, uh, as much as I am a Star Wars fan, uh, I am really like Ewan McGregor, and I'm glad he's back to making other movies. Um, but this is, it is a strange and beautiful film about a strange experience. This is a film about Jesus's temptation in the desert when he encounters the devil. And as you can see just from this little intro, this is towards the beginning of the film, it's a very strange, mysterious, otherworldly kind of atmosphere that sets up perfectly this strange, mysterious, otherworldly encounter that we're going to begin to look at this morning. You know, we're, we don't often think about Jesus as a figure to be reckoned with. Jesus tends to be, in our popular imagination, this, this kind of meek and mild figure, right? Like Jesus is one who, who hangs out with sheep and, and children and we tend to find him kind of quietly meditating by streams somewhere. Like that's kind of our, the Jesus that we imagine. And while there are, there are some things about that that are, that are rooted in stuff that's true about Jesus, it, it actually kind of creates this image of someone who's very different from the figure that we encounter in the Gospels. A figure who lived in such a way as to anger all of the most powerful people and delight those who are most marginalized and weak, to the extent that he ends up being killed, tortured, crucified, displayed publicly to show others that this is not the way you ought to live. You don't torture and kill really nice people who hang out with sheep and children all the time. That's just not what happens. So what is it that makes this figure so different, so revolutionary? Well, we're beginning a series this week that's going to kind of move us towards Easter, going to kind of carry us through the Lenten season, and we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, it's the, the third biography of Jesus that we find in the New Testament. There's, there's four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Luke is that third one, um, and we're going to kind of skip around and look at some of the events that characterize the revolutionary nature of Jesus. Uh, I'd encourage you, if you have a Bible, to kind of read along with us. Um, if you don't, we have Bibles on the back counter. You're welcome to grab one and take it home as our gift to you. Uh, we would love uh, for you to do that. We'd love to give you that as a gift. Um, but we won't have time to cover most of Luke's biography. It's a, a longer, one of the longest ones that we have in the New Testament. So we're just going to hit a couple of different aspects during the week. So I encourage you to read along on your own. But as we're talking about Jesus as a revolutionary figure, we, we need to kind of unpack what do we mean by that. That word can mean a lot to a lot of different people. And, and if you look at just kind of a, the dictionary definition of the word revolutionary, as an adjective, it means involving or causing complete or dramatic change. Something that brings about dramatic change. And we're going to be looking at how, if we take Jesus seriously in his teachings, in the implications of his death and resurrection, 
what that might mean for our lives, how we might experience transformation and change. So we're going to try and enter into the story with Jesus. And, and I want to start with one of the, the first the first kind of stories that we encounter, the first experiences of Jesus in Luke's gospel. So we're going to look at this encounter that we saw on screen here, portrayed by Ewan McGregor, but we're going to back up a little bit and get a little bit of context, because it's important to know that this is, it's a story that we're entering into. And so we need to kind of know what's going on in the story and not just kind of pop in and assume things without getting the context. So I'm going to start a little bit earlier. We're going to start with a character called John the Baptist. John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin, and before Jesus started his public ministry, John the Baptist came on the scene, and he started preaching, telling people they basically had to, they had to change the way they were living. They had to repent, and they had to turn in a different direction. Scripture tells us he was kind of preparing the way for Jesus. And there's one dramatic scene early on in Luke where John is just baptizing tons of people. They're coming down, and he's, he's baptizing them in the river, And Jesus shows up. And we're going to read a a brief passage out of Luke chapter 3, where Jesus joins in the baptism. Luke writes, beginning in verse 21, One day when the crowds were being baptized, Jesus himself was baptized. As he was praying, the heavens opened, and the Holy Spirit in bodily form descended on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, You are my dearly loved son, and you bring me great joy. It's interesting as you read through this passage, Luke adds it almost as like an afterthought. He talks about John preaching and all of these people coming and getting baptized, and he's like, oh yeah, and kind of by the way, Jesus showed up on the scene, and he got baptized too. But then we hear this remarkable encounter he has, where he hears the voice of God say specifically to him, you are my dearly loved son, you bring me great joy. In the midst of this intensive experience, Jesus hears these words of affirmation from God, from from his Father. And as you probably know, words of affirmation are a really powerful thing from a parent to a child. Most of us realize that, you know, only as we get older. It's, It's the kind of thing that you don't really understand that it's happening when you're a child, but later when you reflect back on, you realize sometimes for good and sometimes for ill, what your parents' words meant to you. And if, if you had a parent who was really affirming, who, who saw who you were and affirmed that in you, that does something, that, that shapes who you are and how you see yourself, right? And likewise, if you didn't, if you had a parent who, who couldn't or didn't identify what was good and right in you and affirm that. Well, you might later in your adult life realize you have a hard time understanding who you are. That affirmation as a parent is critical for that child's sense of self and understanding who they are and what they're about. And early on here in Jesus' ministry, we see God affirming Jesus. You are my son. You give me great joy. Now, we might kind of feel like this is a little odd. Um, If you're not familiar with the Jesus story, one of the core tenets of the Christian faith is that Jesus is both fully God and fully human. And so there's 
maybe a temptation to be like, so why would that need to happen? Like, wh- why does Jesus need to hear God say that if Jesus is God? Like, and that's a, it's a good question. Um, and the scripture doesn't really answer that question for us. What it does is it identifies that he, at this time, before Jesus does anything significant in his ministry, God affirms his place, his identity as God's son and as one who is loved, who brings him great joy. But it doesn't stop there. We then move into what's called genealogies in Luke. We, we kind of immediately jump from this into this long list of people who begat other people, who begat other people, who begat other people. Um, if you've ever tried to read one of those series, it's funny, um, some, our kids, we've been doing this thing with our kids where we're having them read through the New Testament with us. Um, and my one daughter, she, she's like, she got to this point in her reading, and she said, Dad, it's just a bunch of names. What, like, can I just skip it? Um, and, you know, she's 12, so I was like, well, I just kind of read quickly, right? So, but it's not, even though we tend to just kind of brush over those, if you've ever read it, it's kind of the point where you're like, let me just kind of jump down to the end. I get it. Lots of people had babies, and we ended up here. Luke isn't throwing this in here. They didn't waste space. They didn't just throw things out there for the sake of filling a void, a gap. There was something really intentional that Luke is doing here. At the tail end of this genealogy, we kind of get the source. You know, it starts at Jesus, and he backs through all the people who had babies. And at the end, I want to read to you the last four lines of the genealogy. He says, he writes, Kenan was the son of Enosh. Enosh was the son of Seth. Seth was the son of Adam. Adam was the son of God. And so in this long list of names that are kind of obscure to anybody who's not like a Greek scholar, what we see is that Luke is tying Jesus into this larger story. He's tying him to God, saying, yes, Jesus hears this affirmation as he's getting baptized. He is God's son. God is pleased with him. He gives God joy. And then he ties him into this larger story, this kind of, he, he, he fits him into the narrative, into the story that God is telling. And he ties him directly to God as God's son, using this literary device of a genealogy. And as you read down through these names, it helps place Jesus in God's story as you hear the, the names of some of these larger-than-life figures in the Jewish history. So I think I may have told this story before a while ago, but I have a friend named Barbara. Um, Barbara is, uh, she's quite a bit older than me. Um, Actually, she's probably old enough to be, she was, she's past now. She's old enough, she was old enough to be like my great-grandmother. I I got to know Barbara through a work work I had done with uh, a nonprofit organization for a long time. She had been a part of that organization, one of the early uh, kind of people in, in the movement. And I'd gone to know her and would go and visit her. She was living at in an assisted living facility in Lancaster, and I got to spend some time with her. And if you've ever got to spend time with people who are a couple of generations older than you, you just it's so enjoyable to just sit there and soak up their wisdom, to hear about their life experience, to hear the ways they've been shaped. It was a real gift to get to know Barbara. 
Um, but, you know, she's kind of this very unassuming person, doesn't talk much about herself or about her history. And one day, I was reading a book. There's a book by a guy named Tim Keller, which uh, is kind of a famous pastor guy who lives in New York City, and he started hundreds of churches. And so he's kind of a big deal for pastor people like me. Um, and I'm reading a book by him that I loved. It was a really very formative book for me. And I get to the end, and he has acknowledgments, right? And so if you've ever read a book and you've gotten to a point where there are acknowledgments, if you're like me, at that point, you close the book and you say, I'm finished. We're done. I don't know why, but for some reason, as I'm reading through the book, I was like, oh, acknowledgments. I'll read them. I, I guess I had nothing else to do. And so I looked, and the, the first line of the acknowledgments, he's like, if I had to, to list all the people who have impacted my life and prepared me to write this book, uh, it would be a book unto itself. But I have to at least mention these five people. And the first name he mentions is Barbara Boyd. And I'm like, there's no way. There's no way it's actually the same person. And so I call my friend Barbara. She answers, she's like, hello. It's like, Barbara, it's Tim. Just out of curiosity, um, you ever met a guy named Tim Keller? Yeah, yeah, I, I know Tim. Okay, um, I'm reading a book by him, and I, I noticed there's a name in the back that's the same as your name. Yes, I know. Oh, I, so yeah, he sent me the book. Cool, so tell me about that. And she responds, of course, she, her response is this. She's like, oh, Tim, I'm just a sinner saved by grace, just like you. I said, no, 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 <laughs> no, 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 that is not the answer. Uh, tell me about the book, right? And so she, she told me a little bit, because she's this completely humble, wonderful person, told me a little bit about the story of how she had been one of the people who had interacted with this pastor when he was in college, had been someone who was very formative in shaping the way he understood God and Scripture, and had this huge impact in his life, so much so that in this book, he put her name. And suddenly, for me, this guy who... I just, I'd read a couple of books, I'd, I'd maybe heard some of his sermons, I'd read some things about him, but he was this very distant figure. Suddenly, I understood his story. And not only did I understand it, but I saw the ways that my story connected with his. There was a way in which it made it more real, come alive, when I understood the, the players in his story. And this is some of what Luke is doing for us when he lays out the genealogy. As he's laying out people like, David, this, this king who's larger than life. Some of these characters in the Old Testament, people like Abraham, the, the patriarchs. Whereas as we read the stories, we're to understand Jesus is part of this, this larger story, this bigger thing that God is doing. He's part of this heritage that goes all the way back to God himself. This is the one who is continuing God's story and is kind of bringing it to its climax, this Jesus. Both of these, these scenes leading up to this kind of weird one that we're about to jump into, they work pretty hard to establish Jesus' identity, to assure us of who Jesus is and what he's about. And then we come to Luke chapter 4. So I want to read this to you, starting at verse 1 
going through verse 13. Again, the, the scripture will be up here on the screen so you can read along. Luke writes, and this is immediately after the genealogy. Then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River. He was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. Jesus ate nothing all that time and became very hungry. Then the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become a loaf of bread. But Jesus told him, No. The Scripture says, People do not live by bread alone. Then the devil took him up and revealed to him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. I will give you the glory of these kingdoms and authority over them, the devil said, because they are mine to give to anyone I please. I will give it all to you if you will worship me. Jesus replied, The scriptures say you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple, and said, If you are the Son of God, jump off. For the Scriptures say, He will order His angels to protect and guard you, and they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Jesus responded, The Scriptures also say, You must not test the Lord your God. When the devil had finished tempting Jesus, he left him until the next opportunity came. So there's a lot we could unpack about this that we just don't have time to get into this morning. Um, But I want to focus kind of on the nature of the temptations as we look at this story. The things that the devil is actually saying to Jesus and what that means for how we understand Jesus' story and the part that that we get to play in that or or where we fit in Jesus' story. So to start off, Satan has, or the devil has three specific ways in which he tempts Jesus. The first is, he says, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. The second, he offers to give him the glory of all the kingdoms of the world if he'll simply worship him. And then finally, the third, he says again, if you are the son of God, jump and God will protect you, right? Take some up somewhere really high, jump off, and God will rescue you. Quote scripture, kind of back that up. So each of these temptations is actually rooted in how Jesus understands his identity, how he understands himself. So obviously, if you are the son of God, like if this is really who you are, Luke has been building this case for us to see Jesus as a specific person, and the devil says, okay, if that's who you are, then prove it. Prove it. Prove to me by your actions that you are the Son of God, that you are really who you say you are. He says, if you could really trust God, then jump. If you really do think God is trustworthy, take the leap. Maybe God won't take care of you, but I will. Worship me, and I'll provide what you need. The primary question that Luke is dealing with here is the identity of Jesus. Who is Jesus? Does Jesus even know who he is? 
does he even feel secure in his identity? And it might sound again like a silly question if our idea of Jesus is this kind of otherworldly figure, this kind of, this, you know, more godlike than human. And it's, it's a paradox, to be sure. Because, again, yes, we would say with the scriptures, Jesus is God, but he's also human. And he's not more one than the other. Jesus is fully human. And so when Jesus is spending 40 days in the desert not eating, we can rest assured that Jesus was really, really hungry. Desperate for food even. If you've ever gone an extended period of time without eating, you know how it messes with your body. Imagine doing that in a desert where you have these extremes of temperatures, hot and cold. You're isolated. You're alone. And again, I I think it's easy for us to tell a story in which Jesus handles that differently than you or I would. But it's why I'm grateful for movies as, as odd as they can be, like Last Days in the Desert. Because they really wrestle with the human Jesus. What would it be like to be in the midst of that experience? What would it be like to go 40 days without food? To get to a place where you start to wonder, is God really going to take care of me? It's been 40 days since anything has happened. Over a month. I'm hungry. I'm alone. Is it really going to be okay? In order for this to actually be a real story, not just kind of something that Luke is spinning to create some narrative tension, these temptations have to be real for Jesus. It's really a, it's something he has to fight against. Maybe he did need to take care of himself. Maybe God wasn't actually going to provide for him like he thought. Maybe he really did need to go kind of the traditional route for power. Maybe he should worship this devil and get power so that he could make it all work out the way that he needs it to, so he can survive. Maybe God really isn't going to take care of him. Jesus really experienced temptation. It was legitimate. And what that means for us, at least kind of at a base level, is that whatever you're experiencing, the questions that you're having, the desert experience that you're going through, when you're looking around going, am I all alone in this? Jesus has been there. He's experienced that. That's not foreign to him. That's an encounter he's walked through. That he knows what it's like to question your identity, to question your value and your worth. He knows what it's like to be tempted to leverage power and money to get what you want. He knows what it's like to wonder if God is really there. Jesus has been tempted. As one of the like, later writers in the New Testament, in the, the book of Hebrews, writes, 
He understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. The first thing we see about Jesus before he begins his ministry is that he knows what it's like to go through the desert, to be alone, and to wrestle with these really difficult questions. He gets it. So how do we see Jesus push through? How does Jesus overcome this? He remembers what story he's a part of. What we see Jesus doing again and again in this passage is remembering the story of Scripture remembering the story that he's a part of and reminding himself and the devil what's actually true, what's really happening. And so it's not just that Jesus is kind of quoting verses of Scripture. It's that all this time the devil, in very subtle ways, is lying. He's saying things that aren't true. And what Jesus is doing is he's telling the truth. He's connecting to what's actually true about himself, about God, and about the nature of the world. And he's speaking what's true. Telling the truth, as George Orwell said, is a revolutionary act. Speaking what's true is a creative act. Jesus moves through these temptations, these struggles, by rooting himself in what is true and right about himself and the world, and he speaks it. Speaking the truth is powerful. When George Orwell said it was a revolutionary act, he wasn't just being hyperbolic. I mean, think about all the great kind of revolutionary movements. Things like the, the civil rights movement or the women's rights movement. Um, the, the, the movement to abolish uh, child labor laws. What were they about? Well, they were about speaking what was true. That human beings, regardless of ethnicity or, or gender or age, were all people who reflected God's image. And so to treat them differently, to oppress one person because they weren't like you, it was living a falsehood. It was living a lie. The power behind those movements was the ability to connect to what was actually true. It was speaking the truth. Or think about uh, the follow-up to apartheid in South Africa, how Archbishop Desmond Tutu and Nelson Mandela and many others, how how they organized the, the Truth and Reconciliation Uh, commission, where the idea there was in order for reconciliation to happen, it had to begin with truth-telling. It had to, true reconciliation can only happen if the truth is laid bare. And so those who had committed atrocities, crimes, had the opportunity to come forward and say what was true about them. They didn't even have to apologize. They just had to say what was true. And it was that, it was that moment, that, that willingness to say what was true, even if it was horrific, that made it possible 
for forgiveness to be offered and for reconciliation to happen. Speaking the truth is a revolutionary act. And this is how Jesus moves through this temptation. He roots himself in what's true. And he speaks it again and again. Um, there's a, a man named Alexander, I'm going to try and say his name, I mess it up all the time, Sol, Solzhenitsyn. I probably messed that up. Um, so he, he wrote this, he wrote many books, um, the largest being what's called the Gulag Archipelago. It's a, a three-volume set um, that I believe is like 18, 1900 pages. So if you're in for some light reading, pick it up. It'll be good. Um, this was a gentleman who experienced more horrors than we can imagine. He, was, uh, he, he fought for the, the Soviet Union during World War II, was put in a, a forced labor camp, um, I believe by the Germans, uh, survived that, came home, and then was put in a forced labor camp in Russia, the Gulag, Soviet Gulag. While he was there, he wrote this work, the, the Gulag Archipelago, in his head. He didn't have access to, to paper and pencil, so he kind of wrote it out in his head. Eventually wrote it down when he was free. All he did in this work is talk about his experience as someone who went through a Russian gulag. That was it. He just talked about his experience as a prisoner and what it was like. But then it got out. And the effect of this work simply saying what was true about what was happening in the Soviet gulags was instrumental in beginning the dismantling of the Soviet Union. In his obituary, one of the New York Times uh, columnists wrote about his work, the Gulag Archipelago. He said, Gulag was a monumental account of the Soviet labor camp system, a chain of prisons that by Mr. Solzhenitsyn's calculation, some 60 million people had entered during the 20th century. The book led to his expulsion from his native land. George F. Kennan, the American diplomat, described it as the greatest and most powerful single indictment of a political regime ever to be leveled in modern times. Just telling the truth. Granted, 1,900 pages of the truth, but the truth started the dismantling of this massive empire. Solzhenitsyn himself said, the simple act, I'm sorry, the simple step of a courageous individual is not to take part in the lie. One word of truth outweighs the world. Telling the truth is a revolutionary act. And the invitation to follow Jesus as we, as we encounter him in Luke's gospel is an invitation into truth-telling, into being people who learn to identify what's true about ourselves, God, and the world, and learn to say what is true, to speak it. Now, the obvious follow-up question to that might be, so what is the truth? Right? And that's just a, it's a small question which we can easily tackle here in the next five minutes. Um, of course, that's yeah, me trying to make light of it. It's this huge question, right? What is the truth? 
But when we look at the Gospels, one of the things that we come to see pretty quickly is that truth, as Jesus presented it, was not a creed. It wasn't a list of things that we need to adhere to. It wasn't kind of the, these, these rules or regulations that we had to memorize and then kind of regurgitate. That truth is ultimately found in a person. That truth isn't information, it's an individual. In one of the other Gospels, in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Right? Not, not here's the truth, take it and memorize it. Me. I'm the truth. That fundamentally, Jesus is offering truth as an experience with a person not just as information to be digested and regurgitated. And so to say that Christ is the truth is to say that our story is kind of wrapped up with his, that our identity is found with him, that in understanding him, we understand what's true about ourselves and about God and about the nature of reality, about how the world works. And that affects everything. It affects how we interact with each other personally. It it affects our public lives, our private lives, our professional lives, our political lives. Encountering a person shapes how we live as people. How we see ourselves, God, and the world. But it's, it's challenging. And it's very different then most of us, most people in the world, tend to operate. It's, an, it's a countercultural kind of movement, this way of Jesus. And just as the devil was inviting Jesus to find security and power outside of life with God, to find it in these kind of attempts to, to secure it for himself, to not trust God, but to grab at power and wealth, and safety. We have the same opportunity to trust in our own ability to achieve those things for ourselves, to grasp at at power and self-protection over loving our neighbor, to grasp at um, self-gratification over sacrificing ourselves for the sake of others to hold on to security and power rather than letting go of it and trusting God to care for us while we care for and love others. Those temptations are real and they're present every day. And the only way we can become the people we were created to be, to live life to the fullest, is to tap into what's true about ourselves, about God, and about the world. And we do that as we encounter the person of Jesus. And as we allow him to transform us and the way that we view everything, ourselves, God, and the world. And as we do that, it probably won't be super popular. It probably won't be something. After all, this it's this truth-telling. It's this saying what's ultimately true that ends up making everyone in power angry the point that they crucify and kill Jesus. 
But it is, as Jesus says, the truth that sets us free. That to live fully who we were created to be, free lives, we need to be in touch with what's true. This is the invitation of Jesus, to root ourselves in the truth, to root ourselves in him. Uh, A final word in that, uh, as we learn to speak the truth, it's really important that we do so with grace and humility. That we, as uh, one of the other New Testament writers says later, that we speak the truth in love. Now, that doesn't mean that we just make sure that everybody around us is happy and feels good about what we say all the time. But it does mean that telling the truth isn't about drawing lines in the sand. It's about having real and honest dialogue about what we actually think about things. And when we're true, to, when, we're true when we say what's true in a way that's gracious and loving and doesn't draw lines but welcomes people into dialogue, we can actually deal in a way that helps all of us grow together. doesn't mean we agree. We might see things very differently. But we can't move forward if we aren't willing and able to say what's true. And Jesus invites us to, to root ourselves in truth as we encounter him, as we find ourselves in his story, walking with him, following him, learning from him, living his way. We're going to uh, wrap up our time together by taking communion. Typically, we would do some Q&A, but we've had a a number of different elements this morning, and so we're going to move right into communion. Communion is just a kind of a a simple way that we can remember Jesus' death on the cross. Take a little bread, a little juice, remember his body and his blood. And as we do so, we see both the risk of being people who live by and speak the truth, but we also encounter the offer to find life as we live by the truth. Because in Jesus' death, we see both the the tragedy that it brought, his, his death on the cross, but we also see the resurrection, the the hope that truth does ultimately bring freedom. It often brings suffering with it, but that suffering leads us to life, to resurrection, to hope, as we ground ourselves in the truth, the one who is the truth, Jesus. Father, would you help us as we come to to take a little bread and a little juice and remember your death and resurrection? Um, would Would you help us to get a picture of the truth. Help us to to grow a sense of, of who we are, of who you are, and of what it looks like to live in the world as we come to encounter the person of Jesus. Give us courage to pursue truth individually and together, and give us courage to speak what's true about ourselves and God and the world. Thank you that the truth sets us free. Help us to pursue freedom together as we pursue the truth, as we pursue Jesus. It's in his name that we pray.